Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Ewan Dahlqvist. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% Zoom, my favorite platform used hey. for the arbitration station. <laughs> is this some free advertising? <laughs> <laughs> the quality is much better, actually. Yeah, I like this. But, you know, on Swedish public radio, like the Swedish BBC, whenever they mention a brand name, they have to uh, make sure that they also say, there are, of course, other brand names that yes. also perform the same essential services so that they don't <laughs> seem to be biased. Like, so you should say for the record that there are other providers other than Zoom as well, which are all amazing. Exactly, like Microsoft Teams, for example. Yes. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> Should we just skip the whole where in the world are we? Because no one is obviously moving around. It's <laughs> very true. And we're all in, in greater London slash Cambridge for the foreseeable future. Right. Yes, I confirm. I haven't even moved any rooms since we talked last time. So <laughs> <laughs> The walls are closing in on us. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. We can move forward. Um, it'd be exciting if we have something to say uh, to change that in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys have any foreign trips? I mean, I have actually been to Sweden uh, to pick up a few things a few weeks ago, just for a few days. But otherwise, I've been I've been sitting around in London. I was. I'm just um, defining an exit strategy. If we go into lockdown, <laughs> that's all I'm doing. <laughs> trying to plan in advance to go back to France, but that's all. Where would you uh, go back to France? I would go back to France to uh, benefit from free childcare. <laughs> no, no, no. Where, where in France? Where in France? Would you uh, where in France? Um, in uh, the equivalent of Cambridge uh, in uh, France, which is uh, around 20 minutes from uh, Paris uh, to a town called Chantilly. So, oh yeah yeah so it's uh, it's very close to paris but it's very green and that's the hometown so I would, would be you going take there. that train yeah so it's a it's just a train hopping really there's a train that goes from cambridge to london then london to paris and then paris to chantilly same station so oh. it's just hop 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 very yeah, easy the old days of travel <laughs> <I know. laughs> assuming the trains work and there's no uh, restrictions on travel of course but um that would be the plan. So we're hoping that we're not going to go in lockdown and that everything is okay. But apart from that, no travel plans. Yeah. Fingers crossed for all of us. Fingers I, crossed. I will be exactly. heading south um, to the southern tip of the island uh, to Whitstable, which is known for their oysters. So that will be my weekend trip, a, a semblance of a vacation. That's lovely. Mm, that sounds yeah. really good, actually. That does sound good, yeah. Because the UK is beautiful. Come on, we have to stop. It is, <laughs> it yeah. is. I mean, if you go 30 minutes outside of Stockholm, you're going to see some 1950s, like, socialist high-rise and, and a pizza <laughs> shop. No offense, okay. Joe. N- none, none taken, Brian. Uh, <laughs> before we move, move further... <laughs> I want to, of course, we want to uh, highlight Investment Arbitration Reporter, uh, aka IA Reporter, which is our sponsor for this fifth season of the Arbitration Station. 
And if, against all odds, you do not know, IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that cover up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable data set on more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and council information. Can you hear the middle temple bells in the background? Or is oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, we can color. Anyhow, to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. I do check. Yeah, and talking of IA Reporter, I actually saw some news recently that I thought were really interesting because we had a whole segment on renewable energy cases last time. Um, and I saw this article um, that a couple of investors that were suing Spain um, in PV investors versus Spain had reportedly waived their rights to pursue arbitration claims or collect damages in order to benefit from incentives offered by Spain in a decree law. So that's interesting. A while back, probably last year or, or something like that, I read that uh, there was a government change in Spain and the renewables cases were actually discussed as part of the mainstream political debate and the new government sort of pledged to figure these things out. And I think mm -hmm. offering some sort of, uh, it's not really a settlement from what I can tell, maybe you know more, Sadia, if you read the article more thoroughly, it's just some sort of uh, offer in return to the investors for them waiving their claims, including the, the pending claims, of which there are, of course, many. So I think uh, the political winds have changed in, in Spain. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. I don't think it's a settlement per se. I think that's what they're, I mean, I, I can't, I haven't read it <laughs> entirely uh, looking at the underlying documentation, but it seems that um, the renewable energy producer that had been entitled certain incentives before the regulatory changes would be paid a return of 7.39% until 2031, but only if they pledge not to pursue arbitral claims, withdraw from ongoing arbitration, or waive their rights to collect damages under existing arbitral awards. That's I mean, a bit of a settlement. Though. It does. It does sound like a set. Yeah. Mm. They're smart. I mean, I think yeah. that's, a, that's a good move. So many cases. So yeah. much money. Can, yeah. Yeah. And I think also the, the objective was to keep doing business in Spain, right? For these investors. So that's a good outcome. For them. Yeah. The rare win-win. Yeah. <laughs> the rare win-win. <laughs> yeah. Or wind-wind. No, it's not. It's solar. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> oh, I like that. Too bad. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, these are latest news that I've seen. Guys, have you seen anything else that caught your eye? Well, we there was a court case that we talked about on our little arbitration chat group in Kenya, but perhaps we'll enter into that discussion when we get into our topics. Mm -hmm. um, we have a kind of a thematic two segments for, um, for everyone. We have uh, to talk about the immunity, liability and immunity of arbitral institutions. We'll start off with a segment by Sadia giving us a background of kind of a comparative approach on the liability and immunity of arbitral institutions. And then I will, as to provide color to that background, have an interview with Eric Tuckman, who is the general counsel at the American Arbitration Association, as well as the vice president of the ICDR. And he's been at the 
those institutions, I guess we could say, for over 20 years. Um, so he can provide some insider perspective on um, how this immunity is invoked and whether they invoke it and what the success is on that invocation. But talking, we also talked to him about other topics that the um, arbitral institution is facing at the moment. We, I don't know if, if, if any, everybody knows, but the AAA and the ICDR, they are essentially two branches of the same organization, right? Mm-hmm. One international and one domestic. Is that the right way Correct. of phrasing it? Yes. And then for a happy fun time topic, we have something that not many of us lawyers know about, pro bono work. <laughs> yeah, pro bono work. How it comes up, what we do, what it entails, and why we should do more. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) Does that sound good, guys? Amazing. Amazing program. Let's go. liability and immunity of arbitral institutions. So I'm doing this segment, even though this is, I think, Jewel's favorite topic in the world. <laughs> to talk top about five. Top five for top sure. Top five topics. I remember actually we had, um, I think it was my first segment in the podcast, actually, where I did a segment on the difference between institutional and ad hoc arbitration. And so we had discussed at the end of that segment, the wider role that arbitral institutions we're playing in the field of arbitration. And one of the questions that we had asked is, you know, because they have such a significant role in arbitration, I think we all agree that is true, that not just a merry administrative um, function, but even in, in that respect, um, the flip side of that coin is, you know, liability. So are they responsible for their actions and of in their function um, and uh, or not? Do they benefit from immunity like arbitrators do? So that's kind of the context of, uh, of this segment, which is, uh, which is in fact, uh, and I hope you will all agree, super interesting. While doing some research, um, we found this really interesting article by uh, Vider in 2016 that was entitled Arbitrators and Arbitral Institutions Legal Risks for Product Liability. And if I may, uh, we don't usually do this, but I would like to read the introduction because I think it's brilliant to set the scene and explain why this topic is very important. You may, Sadia, and as far as I'm concerned, no shade on you guys, but we could just read Johnny Veter's writing for the next 45 minutes. Uh, yeah. Into the microphone and be done exactly, with it. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just going to be like uh, bringing to life his words, trying to read properly. Okay, here it goes. Let us imagine a brown ginger beer bottle produced by a well-known global institution for your personal use. The bottle's label proudly proclaims that in addition to reaching regions of the world that other natural beverages cannot reach, its ginger beer is the best beverage that is better than any municipal water. Not even probably so, like mere Danish beers, but indisputably so. This ginger beer is said to be more cost-effective, more efficient, and quicker at quenching your thirst than any other kind of beverage. The bottle's label contains no advisory, health information, or other warning whatsoever. So this green, eco-friendly ginger beer is proclaimed as effectively the only drink in town. Now, let us also imagine 
that this global institution knows for certain that at least 50% of those of us who drink its ginger beer are likely to be greatly dissatisfied with this experience. In the ginger beer trade, the 50% of dissatisfied consumers are known as losers, while the satisfied consumers are called winners. Let us imagine further that those of us who would like to be winners find, once the bottle is opened, that a particular bottle contains not only a decomposed snail, which can make the drinking experience less than satisfactory, but worse, that the bottle contains no ginger beer at all. And in the ginger beer trade, technically that is called a quote, annulled ginger beer. <laughs> you guys still following? <laughs> I continue. I continue. There are two additional details, says Peter. First, there is a legally binding contract between the institution and the imbibers. Is that how you would pronounce it, the imbibers? Yep. This case is not an elderly case from an old casebook on torts or delits. It is not exactly clear what the contract's applicable law might be or what court might have jurisdiction over any dispute between the imbibers and the institution. However, it is manifestly clear that the institution has assumed significant contractual obligations towards the imbibers um, of its ninja bear bottles. Furthermore, there may be certain non-contractual legal obligation on the institution as a promoter, manufacturer, and supplier of ninja bear, depending on the applicable law and the judicial form. Second, the cost of a ginger beer bottle is not a modest five US dollars or so. Taking into account all costs, the total can amount to millions, even tens of millions of US dollars. However, that price will remain unfixed at the time as user purchases the bottle because it will usually be determined later by the institution itself. While the Sincha Bayer bottle may be cost-effective, effective, sorry, its price will not be cheap or fixed at the point of sale. Now, on these facts, if we found the bottle empty or polluted, caused by the negligent act or omission of the institution, would we be surprised to learn that we had no legal claim against the institution? So that's the introduction to the great articles of Vider on arbitrators and arbitral institutions uh, liability. I think it sets the scene pretty well. While I was reading this, I had MC Hammer's song in the background, like, you can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish we could play it because it's pretty... Um, it, it, it would it would pretty be accurate for um, arbitration users. Beyond insert here. <laughs> yes, please. He could. <laughs> we don't have any copyright restrictions. We don't want to get sued on <laughs> this by MC Hammer. Can't touch but, this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. So you're going to arbitration, and I mean, what can go wrong? Why would you think about suing the arbitral institution, guys? What do you think? Any well, ideas? For many claims. Well, I mean, you could even go against the institution for something like the, the impropriety of an arbitrator or the failure to disclose certain conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. um, so the nomination stage, you're saying that they didn't accomplish their nomination process the right. way they should have? Okay, yeah. Right. Um, or if, for example, if there was a conflict of interest between someone on the board and mm -hmm. one of the parties and that mm -hmm. person didn't remove themselves from a vote to appoint one of the arbitrators, that could be... That could be one of, as well. 
yeah. challenges to arbitrators mm -hmm. or failure to, I guess, in the typical case, the, an institution has been tasked with a challenge and for some reason the challenging party is not happy with the institution's decision, which then leads to the arbitrator remaining on the case. Yeah, so uh, the, the both examples that you're giving interestingly relate to the arbitrators themselves, right? Uh, right. And they're, they're very, they're, this, is, this is good examples. These are good examples because I'm going to speak about those. There's other stuff as well, um, you know, as for example, a confidential document that was leaked by the arbitral institution or other procedural irregularities, not just appointment of arbitrators. Um, or even if you just lose, you're super angry. <laughs> you're just like, ah, it's because of the institution. So you may, they also, you know, sorry, but I don't know if this is in your manuscript, but they also hold the money typically, like they're, they're in charge of the funds. And I would assume are. that there are, you know, things can happen when money is being transferred back and forth and calculation oh, of advances on, on costs or I don't know, like interest bearing aspects of yeah. it, or one party doesn't get back what they feel like they are entitled to or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, very true. And in fact, now that you're saying that this has happened in one of the cases uh, or is happening in one of the cases we're involved in. So I can't speak too much about it. But an example of um, an institution, it's not one of the main known one institutions, but where, for example, um, the advance of the arbitration costs have been reimbursed to the defendants because they said, oh, we don't want to be, take part in the arbitration anymore. And then you're like, wait, what? Why did you do that? You weren't supposed to do that. And so, um, so that's a good idea. I didn't even think about suing them for that. Um, but yeah, let's <laughs> let's think about that. But so you may, you know, you may want to seek aside, you know, set aside the award or null the award. And um, but anyways, um, the damage is done. So what recourse do you have against the arbitral institution? So the answer is, it depends as of course, all the answers to all the legal questions. And it very much depends on two things. Um, A, the status of the arbitral institution itself. So whether it's an international organization or not, because international organization have a whole body of law that governs them separately. So I'm gonna come, I'm gonna park this thought for a second. So for example, exit. Or, um, and if they're not in the international an international organization, strictly speaking, then it would all depend on the jurisdiction. Um, and here, if I may uh, be so blunt as to summarize, um, there is a clear divide between common and civil law approaches, as usual. <laughs> so what do you think, guys? I'm not going to put you on the, on the spot here. But which one do you think is more lenient towards providing immunity to uh, arbitral institution and which one less so? If I may, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you don't know. Which, which type of jurisdiction makes it harder to sue a big, rich service provider and which type of jurisdiction <laughs> makes it less hard? Civil I would assume jurisdiction <laughs> makes it harder. <laughs> Kind of a I leading think, question, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's harder to to sue in in common law jurisdictions than in civil law jurisdictions. Yeah, so MC Hammer is American, right? Can't touch this. <laughs> you can remind the, yourself like this. Whereas the French, I think it's always like you know, everyone's responsible, even the king. Um, so um, yes, so they're a bit more wary about the notion of immunity, um, but French is not civil, uh, all the civil jurisdictions, but that's, again, I'm summarizing. So let me dive into the common law approach. Um, and, you know, just a little bit of background, I, we're talking about arbitral institutions, but I will still say a bit a few words about arbitrators, because the rationale is the same. 
um, in the justification of the common law approach to uh, statutory and quasi-judicial immunity of arbitrators than it is for arbitral institutions. Um, so, for example, the general rationale was explained by Lord Raid in Sutcliffe versus Takha and others, which was a case in 74. Um, and um, and I, here I quote, I think that the immunity of arbitrators from liability for negligence must be based on the belief, probably well-founded, that's that without such immunity, arbitrators would be harassed by actions which, which would have very little chance of success and may also have been thought that an arbitrator might be influenced by the thought that he was more likely to be sued if his decision went one way than it went the other way, or that in some way the immunity put him in a more independent position to reach the decision which he thought right. Um, so this position is explicit in many modern arbitration statutes. So to give an example, the U.S. one. So it's not, I don't think it's in the Federal Arbitration Act, but it's in the U.S. Revised Uniform Arbitration Act of 2000, which is adopted by 22 states, uh, with two more pending, apparently. And Section 14, which is called Immunity of Arbitrator, states an arbitrator or an arbitration organization acting in that capacity is immune from civil liability to the same extent as a judge of a court of the state acting in a judicial capacity. May I throw a wrench into this, Arya, and mm -hmm. set up? Because I think it's very important to keep those two service providers apart, institutions and arbitrators. And I, maybe I'm wrong to think about this in terms of contractual relationships, because obviously there's some statutory mm -hmm. limitations here, but the, both arbitrators and institutions provide services and they have some sort of contract or agreement with the users of arbitration, but they are very different kinds of services and presumably different kinds of liability. I can see the rationale that you, that you uh, quoted that arbitrators who actually make decisions should not do that with the mm -hmm. threat of, of litigation pending over them when they make decisions. But institutions, at least on, on the face of it, are not supposed to be making decisions. They are administering and doing another kind of service. And I think those are two very different things that should so, be kept apart. Yes, I agree. Two quick remarks. First one is you are obviously a civil trained lawyer <laughs> because this <laughs> remark comes from a civil trained heart. And I'm going to uh, expose this civil law approach um, just in a few minutes. And it is gonna, it's called the contractual approach. So okay. this is exactly the rationale for the second point I want to make is you are right. But um, at some point there was a conference where we were discussing this issue. And I remember the approach taken by, um, there was the um, uh, president of Corsica, which is the center of arbitration. Um, sorry, I always say it wrong. <laughs> He's going to kill me. Ismail, I'm so sorry. Uh, Corsica, <laughs> which is the Cairo Regional Institute of Arbitration. And he explained why it was very important that Corsica had immunity. They had, I think, uh, one or multiple cases against Egypt. So they are based in Egypt, okay? Um, and they said that it was necessary for them to have this immunity um, just to stay independent from the state, et cetera, and have confidence of their users. So that's one approach also taken. Mm. So yes, you want, I completely agree um, with what you said that there are two completely separate relationships, the arbitrators and the institution, but the institution also could be pressurized by the state and et cetera, it could happen. I mean, at least in this, these kinds of jurisdiction that have been an issue and that was under discussion. Yeah, and, so I mean, and in general as well as we will probably yeah. come to and, and as Brian talked to, to Eric about as well, that, that institutions are sued pretty frequently. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everywhere in the world. So it's not just in Egypt. Um, just to continue on the common law approach, I cited the US approach, so I cannot not cite the UK approach. Um, so UK Arbitration Act 96, um, this section 29, um, an arbitrator is not liable for anything done or omitted in the discharge or perpetrated discharge of his functions as arbitrator, unless the act or omission is shown to have been made in bad faith. Section 74, an arbitral or other institution or person designated or requested by the parties to appoint or nominate an arbitrator is not liable either for anything done or omitted in the discharge or perpetrate discharge of that function unless the act or omission is shown to have been in bad faith. Um, so like you probably noticed, um, there's a limit to this um, immunity and for example, under the Arbitration Act that I just cited, this immunity um, would only apply to, it, first of all, English seated arbitration. And this immunity is limited only, uh, limited only to the appointment of arbitrators. So it's interesting because you both gave me examples of appointment of arbitrators and it seems to be the one thing that everyone is worried about. Or anything done or omitted in discharge of that specific function. So as Vider, for example, points out in his article that I quoted earlier, this fails to cover a wide range of functions more interventionist institutions uh, perform in arbitration, such as, for example, the ICC. So you could think that in their function of scrutiny of awards, for example, also right. someone could, you know, potentially think of seeing them. Um, so there is some uncertainty under English law over the nature, scope and source of the immunities of arbitral institution. Um, the situation is a bit different in the U.S. Like I mentioned, the U.S. affords arbitrators quasi-judicial immunity, which is near absolute, save for a few exceptions developed in the common law. Um, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but you can imagine like acts exceeding the scope of the judge's jurisdiction, criminal acts, acts which violate constitutional rights, acts which amount to judicial misconduct, et cetera, et cetera. And the same immunity, roughly uh, speaking, also um, applies to arbitral institution. Before you uh, go on to the civil law approach, I just mm -hmm. want to flag for the listeners to stay tuned for the interview because you'd be surprised to hear what types of litigation mm -hmm. is started uh, based off users of arbitration and kind of what they, it almost becomes a quasi appeal based off some of these claims that they're bringing in litigation. So flag that for the listeners for the next segment. Very interesting. So it's mm. a sort of guerrilla tactic too, right? Yeah. 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 And to your point about chilling the arbitrator's decision, it could be definitely affected. Yeah, so um, forgive me for um, just citing the US and the UK approach for common law. Obviously, there are others as well, just which I can mention very briefly, but for example, um, for example, the Singapore uh, approach and the Malaysian approach is very similar um, to the approach in the UK, um, also in Mauritius um, and in Australia. Um, in Ireland, um, uh, Ireland provides for immunity of arbitral institutions without limitation. That's interesting. And in Hong Kong, um, under the arbitration ordinance, um, section 105, the legislation established immunity for appointing or administrating authorities unless any act was done dishonestly. So also just circumcised to the appointment function. I see that. So that's, you know, roughly speaking, sorry for summarizing, but that's 
that's the deal in this podcast. We have to go quick. <laughs> the approach under Kamala. Civil law now. And here is the dual approach. I will call it the dual approach. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, what it really is, is the French approach. And you're not French, but is the contractual <laughs> immunity. Okay. And le- <laughs> before you said anything, this is what I had in my notes. So in France, arbitral, inst- again, to simplify Arbitral institutions are understood to be primarily in a contractual relationship with the parties to the arbitration. And in 87, this theoretical standpoint led one commentator, no other than Philippe Fouchard, to conclude that an arbitral institution is contractually obliged to respect its own arbitration rules, and it may also be obliged to ensure a fair procedure for the arbitration, and that it would therefore be inconceivable that an arbitral institution could benefit from legal immunity under French law. So that's the French approach. Um, So there's absolutely not an absolute grant of immunity. Um, And the first ICC rules to contain such a clause in immunity was the 1998 ICC rules, Article 34, which um, I don't know if you guys know, but there was a change in the ICC rules because of proceedings that were um, initiated against the ICC. So hmm. in the 1998 rules, um, Article 34 provided neither the arbitrators nor the court and its members, nor the ICC and its employees, nor the ICC national committees shall be liable to any person for any act or remission in connection with the arbitration. So pretty, you know, wide immunity, you would say, right? I think I know what was added. If I can I'm sorry? Guess. I think I know what was added, if I can guess. Yeah, tell me what was added. Unless otherwise provided by applicable domestic law or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> so Jewel has been looking at my notes in advance, so that's why. Uh, article 41 of today's rules is they have added... Uh, except to the extent such limitation of liability is prohibited by applicable law. Exactly oh, right. Yeah, no, not exactly right. That's, so, a, that's not what you said? Sorry. No, yeah, it's more or less. But so, so the, the new rule, Article 41, is that uh, except the immunity is not allowed under domestic law. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so that's slightly, I thought it was just, you know, a more, a more general statement saying unless domestic law says otherwise. But here it's, ICC and uh, the court and everyone else, uh, they're immune unless they cannot be immune under domestic law. It's a slightly more narrow. Yeah. It, and it's, I, ha- it's I, have not, I have not cheated and looked at your notes, Sadia. But okay, we, sorry. We, Jill we, is we, just naturally. No, just, no, no, you know, no, 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 no. It's, that, that's another yeah, natural explanation. I just have. We'll get back to this strange case in, in Kenya. That's why I actually, yeah. it, it prompted me to look up what the ICC rules provided for. So I, I read article 44. No, but so we're going to talk, we're going to talk about that really interesting Kenyan case that both Brian and Joel now have mentioned. So we have to speak about it. And I, I'm going to let Joel and, and Brian speak about it. I'm just going to mention the, why these rules were changed in the first place and mention that case, which was this SNF versus Cytec, um saga. It's called the saga places, um, which was um, 
which involved actually multiple awards from an ICC administered arbitration and numerous civil proceedings in France and in Belgium afterwards. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's a bit of a procedural crazy thing that had happened in that case. So I urge you to look it up. But um, what had happened in the end as a result of these um, crazy complicated uh, proceedings is that SNF then brought proceedings against the ICC, arguing that the ICC rules were breached by the length and excessive costs of the arbitral proceedings. And SNF alleged that the ICC effectively conspired with the arbitrators mm. to evade, um, in this case, uh, mandatory EU competition rules, contrary to French law and international public policy. In uh, 2009, the Court of Appeal of Paris, la Cour d'Appel de Paris, ruled that although rejecting any liability on the part of the ICC, that the total exemption of liability in the 98, 98 ICC rules was unenforceable. So this ruling gave rise to the present ICC liability clause, which uh, limits the liability, as we mentioned, uh, with the words, except to the extent such limitation of liability is prohibited by applicable law. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, there's another case as well. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but it's another example of, um, of a case that was brought by um, a user in arbitration against the ICC, which involved uh, Cameroon. So it was the uh, Garoubet case, which also is public. And in that case, what had happened, and so just give me one second, I'm just going to get the, my notes out. And it was because of the claimant in that case did not pay um, in advance of costs. Um, and so the tribunal um, decided to uh, suspend its activity, which is usual in this type of uh, scenario. And, um, and what happened is the claimant then sued the ICC uh, before the juridiction d'appui, which is the judges that support the arbitration normally um, and in France, um, to invite the arbitral tribunal to uh, recommence the proceedings. Um, and then this, it was a decision that would order in that sense against the tribunal. And uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the case was brought before the Appeals Court of Paris and then also after between the Supreme Court of Paris, the Golden Gas Session, which said that you can't intervene um, in, you know, in, in the arbitral institution and the tribunal's uh, business when that happens, basically. Uh, so the court can't order this. And it was the wrong court. So that was the thing. It was the wrong court. So the it wasn't the, they didn't, they should have, they insisted that it was the contractual relationship that was in question. So they should have gone before the commercial code, which was the Tribunal de Grand Instance. It was the oh. wrong, uh, wrong jurisdictional forum. So they didn't discuss about liability there, but it was just a forum. So it's just another, another example of a case brought um, against the ICC. Of course, there are others. And there's a, and there is, I think, the segue for the Kenyan case that we were mentioning. There you go. It's, it's a great segue because it highlights the, uh, the key question, I think, which, which Johnny Vider and his intro that you read, Sade, also hinted at, which is wh where do you go and under which law, which set of rules do you go if you feel like you have a case against the institution? Even if in this case it's clear that it's France and probably Paris, uh, it's not even super clear which Paris court would have jurisdiction, depending on how you read the relationship between the institution and the, and the suing party. But this uh, now Kina case that we've hinted at 49 times already is not something that has been discussed uh, either by, by uh, brand, um, publications in the field, nor I think by scholars. And it's, 
so we should say that we don't really know that much about it. We, we, we got some documents about this and we have not looked any further than the documents. I don't know anything about the veracity of the documents and there are no other comments about this case. So with that caveat, I, I think we should at least mention what it is because it, it really, it's just a few days old, more or less. It's very much in, time, in good timing and it touches on some of these issues in a very concrete way. So this is a court case in Kenya and it relates to an ICC arbitration, it seems. And in that ICC arbitration, uh, one party, the losing party, felt that the arbitrator appointed by that losing party maybe did not do his job as well as he should have according to this party. So the disappointed party sued this arbitrator in court in Kenya, which is interesting because the ICC is in Paris. The place of arbitration in this case was Helsinki, and there seems to be no connection to Kenya either than the fact that the, the suing party is Kenyan. Mm-hmm. And, so they have uh, personal jurisdiction or something like that? Well, I don't know this. I, th- there is a judgment, and I'm trying to figure out. There's not a lot of jurisdictional basis discussed by the court. I think they just assumed that they have jurisdiction here, mm-hmm. uh, which is not rare, I think, in, when you sue in municipal court, if it's an interesting case. But what they also wanted to do, the suing party here, not just they, – they sued, I think, as far as I can understand, the arbitrator. But part of their uh, issue with the arbitrator was that they felt that he may have been too busy, which is, of course, not unheard of in international arbitration. And in order to back this up, they wanted to know how busy exactly is he. And that is typically information you do not have access to as, as a party. So they asked the court to order the ICC to produce certain documents. And it seems to be basically everything that the ICC knows about this arbitrator, because this arbitrator seems to have other ICC cases. So they wanted the ICC to, to produce these documents, explaining more in detail about how busy exactly is this arbitrator, at least from, from the ICC's horizon. The ICC did not seem to agree to this uh, at all. Uh, and I think now seems to be facing a contempt of court charge in Kenyan court because they didn't produce these documents at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They did, however, appeal the court's first judgment. So I think it is now pending before a higher court. I think it could be court of appeal in Nairobi. I'm not sure. And we don't know uh, a lot about this. And maybe when the time this episode has aired, this has already been discussed elsewhere. So we are jumping the gun a little bit. But I think it is an interesting illustration of some of the issues that you're bringing up, Sadia, because I am not sure what the Kenyan court has to do with this at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange, yeah. Sorry, where did you say the seat was? Helsinki in Finland. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, so no, no link. No link. (laughs) No link, yeah. Not at all. And there's another example. Our listeners will know that I I was digging through the intersection between investment treaty cases and domestic courts for my dissertation, which I have already spoken ad nauseum about. But I found one case in Argentina, which which is similar to this one. It's from the National Grid versus uh, Argentina case, where the seat, I think, was in Washington, D.C. It was also an ICC case administered out of Paris, but the seat legally was in D.C. Argentina challenged the claimant's arbitrator. The ICC denied that and did not remove the arbitrator. Then Argentina went to its own court in Buenos Aires to quote unquote appeal the ICC court's decision not to remove the arbitrator. 
Mm-hmm. And same there, no discussion about why the Argentinian court has anything to do with this, <laughs> but the Argentinian court assumed jurisdiction and actually ordered the tribunal to halt the proceedings while the Argentinian court looked into the merits of ICC's decision not to remove the arbitrator. Mm. And then the tribunal ignored that and the case went on. And I think an award was actually rendered before the Argentinian court could could come up with the final judgment. So ultimately, they did not decide on whether or not the ICC had done something wrong here. Mm. But it is the same sort of that similar fact pattern where you're yeah. unhappy and of course, it seems like it is easier for you as a disgruntled party to go to your home court to sue the ICC than to go to any other court. But there is no particular reason why you should go to your home court as opposed to any other no. court. Also, the remedy that you seek in these, these litigations, I, I find odd and whether they're enforceable on their own. I, and I asked this in the interview, I was like, what, what is the remedy that you seek? Because... Stay the arbitration, fine. They have the power to stay the arbitration. No, on the court, the, any court does not. Only the court at the place of arbitration. Only the court at the place, of, yeah. right. So then, mm-hmm. yeah, so jurisdiction aside, like the, the, the authority of this court may be to stay, yes. But any other remedy, it's basically, let's say they were to decide that that, that, that arbitrator should have been removed. What it, what's the remedy that that court can effectuate in that scenario it's yeah how do you calculate damages how do you yeah yeah it's you can't lot. enforce it of course it's, it's not an arbitral award you will have to go with a yeah. kenyan or argentinian court this decision is, and try to right. have that enforced against the, the institution but, just but, to, sorry. yeah sorry no 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 go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say so this is why i knew about article 41 of the icc rules because <laughs> they, are, they are mentioned in the, in the submissions in this case and that made me think maybe the kenyan party here has already waived its right to sue the icc under ah. Article 41 of the ICC rules. That was not discussed by the court in Kenya, but that seemed to me to be a pretty reasonable thing. In your arbitration agreement, you have agreed to the ICC rules. The ICC rules say you cannot sue the ICC. Maybe then you have agreed not to sue the ICC. But then I saw that language, you know, except... Except to the extent such limitation of liability is prohibited by applicable law. Exactly, yeah. which then brings us back to what is the applicable law here? It, yeah. is, is, it, is it Kenyan, the Kenyan constitution will, will decide whether or not you can make this kind of agreement? Yeah. Although there's no justiciability, no interest for Kenyan courts here whatsoever. I, I'm not sure really if Article 41 uh, solves this issue. It depends, no. a little bit where, depends on where you sue, I guess. Um, for um, it's interesting because um, the LCIA rules uh, mentioned in their rules at Article Thirty One Point, uh, so first Thirty One is limitation of liability and jurisdictional clause. Uh, none of the LCIA, the LCIA court, the LCIA board, any arbitrator, any emergency arbitrator, any tribunal secretary, Joe, any expert to the arbitral <laughs> tribunal shall be liable to any party whatsoever for any act or omission in connection with any arbitration, save where the act or omission is shown by the party to constitute conscious and deliberate wrongdoing committed by the body or person alleged to be liable to that party, or to the extent that any part of this provision is shown to be prohibited by any applicable law. And Article 31.3 grants exclusive jurisdiction to the courts of England and Wales over any dispute. Right. Oh, so here, I didn't know that. So yeah. even, an, even an LCAA case seated elsewhere, if you want to sue the LCAA, you have agreed to do that. And that's that. That's what Article 31.3 oh, seems to say. That is very yeah, interesting. So that's interesting. And I think I would just mention maybe one other example of a very uh, lesser known case where there was uh, a French court that awarded damages, uh, which is the FFIRC case, which concerned a dispute administrated by a local French arbitral institution. 
Um, the sole arbitrator made an award at an oral hearing on the basis of materials that were sent to him by the institution. However, the institution neglected to transmit one document among those materials to a party. And surprise, surprise, the arbitrator's award was ultimately based on this one missing document. Oh, really? <laughs> so the losing party, a Spanish company, success successfully annulled the award. But then the previously victorious French claimant brought a suit against the institution. And there, the French court awarded damages equal to the cost of the annulment proceeding against the institution. So this is to answer your question, uh, Brian. Uh, yeah. Yeah, of course, th those can be the costs that are easy to quantify. Yeah. Any, any proceedings that you have to go through because of the error, or the alleged mm -hmm. error. Yeah, yeah. Um, I see the time is ticking, but if I can say just a few words on the last bit that I mentioned, which is the uh, applicable uh, law to international organizations. Yay, treaty arbitration, treaty arbitration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we veered too far. <laughs> So I don't know if uh, many of you listeners know, and even if you both know, but I didn't know, for example, that um, so the ICC is not an international organization, strictly speaking, uh, but ICSID is. Um, so, you know, I, I, I thought the ICC was, but it's not. Um, it's, I think the, the like commonly held definition under international law includes that it ha a body has to be established by states in order mm -hmm. to be an international yeah. organization. And the ICC yeah. is established by businesses, I think, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Business and that's, organization. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and so ICSID is established by states and ICSID has its own constitution, etc. And so like other international organizations, ICSID benefits from functional immunities set out in the ICSID convention itself. Um, and so, uh, for example, under Section 6, status, immunities and privileges, there's Article 20 and Article 23. Article 20 provides the center, its property and assets shall enjoy immunity from all legal process, except when the center waives this immunity. And Article 23 um, it provides that the archives of the center shall be inviolable, whether they may be. With regard to its official communication, the center shall be accorded by each contracting state treatment not less favorable than that accorded to under international organization MFN clause. Yes. <laughs> With respect immunity, to immunity MFN. <laughs> immunity MFN, exactly. Um, so here the rationale is a bit different. Um, from the common law approach that we just discussed, uh, the need for a neutral arbitrator, or even the approach in the civil uh, jurisdictions or France more specifically, which is the contractual choice of the parties. International immunities have their roots um, in the need for organize international organizations to operate completely independently and independent of interference from the courts of their member states. So this is the rationale behind it. Now, that doesn't mean it hasn't been sued. <laughs> Uh, in fact, ICSID has been sued, not a lot, but uh, in a couple of occasions. And um, I'm going to speak about one instance, which is in 2013, where RSM Production Corporation brought a claim against ICSID for failing to register a demand for the annulment of a previously issued annulment decision. So I can just say a few words about this. RSM had previously sought to bring a claim against the Central African Republic, alleging breach of certain contractual obligations. Um, after the final award, RSM sought annulment um, and the ADA committee uh, declined to annul the award. And after the annulment decision, RSM learned of what it believed to be a serious conflict of interest involving one member of the ADA committee. So it tried to annul the prior annulment decision, which 
of course, you all know, um, is not possible because um, exit annulment decisions are final. So exit refused to register that annulment. So RSM, as a result, brought a civil claim in the DS, uh, sorry, the DC District Court, and um, exit in that court asserted its absolute immunity from suit under the exit convention. And the case was later dismissed as moot and no decision on the merits was reached finally on exit immunities. I thought that was still an interesting case to mention. Absolutely. And again, it goes to Brian's point, what would be the cause of action though? Assuming yeah. there was no immunity, would they ask exit to like create some sort of re-annulment mechanism that doesn't exist in the convention or violate its own rules to, to open up a new edits? You know, what are you asking for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Shaking my head, shaking my head. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, I can, um, there's plenty of other material, I think, and examples of an in- international organization that I think you get the, you know, the gist of it. Um, and so I think I'm going to stop here. Well, for more examples, we can move on to our next segment, which is our interview with Eric Tuckman. Yeah, that's a great segue. All right, for our next segment, we have a guest. We have an interview for everyone. It is Eric Tuckman, who's general counsel at the American Arbitration Association. Hi, Eric, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you, how are you? Good, uh, just dealing with uh, working from home as everyone else is. <laughs> That's right. How is, um, I mean, speaking of this, so basically to give um, the listeners background, you're a general counsel and have been general counsel for a number of years at the um, American Arbitration Association. And in this segment, we wanted to kind of tease out some issues that institution, maybe not issues, but some like extra functions that um, institutions are um, entering into now that they've become more sophisticated and more involved in the arbitral process besides um, a supportive function. So what we kind of want to touch on today are two kind of main topics that um, we can address. And the first one is um, an immunity of an arbitral institution in the event there is an issue or a um, idiosyncrasy in an arbitration and kind of what is the basis for that immunity and the, and the scope and if you have any anecdotes on that. And then another issue which we would love to hear your um, input on is the filing of an amicus curiae by an institution. Um, so with that overview, I just wanted to briefly touch upon COVID-19 and how institutions are handling it. Um, I read an article that, uh, I think it was back in April, that you guys had to adjourn over 300 hearings. So how has the institution kind of worked its way back to, to functioning at full force? Well, we really have been functioning at full force since day one. And like most organizations, the immediate issue was in a very, very, very short amount of time, we had to uh, engage our entire workforce remotely. And for us, that's it's 600 individuals uh, around the country, different oh, wow. locations with different rules and regulations that apply. So it was a full court press and continues to be um, to ensure that we're operating in a way that's consistent with uh, every every different uh, law regulation and uh, local rule that might apply where we have an office. Um, so operationally, really, we've been uh, completely engaged uh, from the beginning. We haven't had uh, really much of a negative impact, but through a lot of work, just to keep our operations running. But in terms of the hearings, that's true. The hearings that otherwise would be taking place in person uh, those quickly just became unavailable. It wasn't 
mm-hmm. possible really anywhere in the world to get to convene people. And we're seeing parts of the world where it's now becoming permissible. Um, we've established, at least for our own offices, where we are allowed in some cities uh, for people to actually come in for hearings. Um, we've got very specific guidelines. We mark out rooms. We have had hearings in person take place, but the numbers have been oh, relatively really? low. Yeah, uh, the numbers are, are relatively low, but we, we actually in New York, we had one last week. Um, it, and it was a hybrid. It was not as though everybody was convening in person. The arbitrator was there. Uh, some support was there. Um, witnesses, you know, many in parties were, were uh, remote. But, but that works. We're sort of set up for whatever um, is permissible. The main issue, though, right now is that a lot of hearings are moving towards virtual hearings. And uh, that's just because everybody, is a, everybody anticipates uh, it's not going to be possible really within the near, you know, near future, the next yeah. six months to a year to really get, you've got a big case and you've got a lot of parties and, and witnesses and uh, support staff. It's not going to be possible to bring them together. So people really are starting to uh, um, understand that uh, a hearing, if it's going to take place, is going to have to be virtual. And again, we've got procedures set up for that. So we feel like we're equipped yeah. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people involved in every case, and um, we've got to get everybody moving in the same direction. In our previous episode, we touched upon kind of the right to a physical hearing and whether a party could claim that they do have a right to a physical hearing and therefore a virtual hearing wouldn't be sufficient. Have you had, in your experience generally, any kickback from parties saying that virtual hearings would, would not be sufficient? Those claims are being asserted. Mm. And it's it becomes a little fact specific because in some cases a party will say you know a particular witness for example is really critical and uh, this person's veracity needs to be uh, examined and understood you can't do that virtually or they'll say that uh, you know there's physical physical evidence that needs to be looked at or perhaps a site visit in a construction case those those arguments are being raised. Um, certainly, and and in some cases they're relevant, but but by and large, uh, again, if, if we're talking about a general trend, we're getting to the point where if it's possible to conduct something virtually, right. uh, arbitrators are are inclined, it seems, to make the determination that they're gonna they're gonna order a hearing go forward on a particular date. If it can be in person, it can be in person, but um, if not, it's gonna go forward virtually. Right. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, I guess everyone is really learning how to be equipped. I mean, we're doing this over Zoom. We, you just have to figure it out at the end of the day. Um, So just to hop into our first topic, um, we, we've had this kind of topic looming between us co-hosts about the liability and the immunity of an arbitral institution. And maybe it's because we were interested in the topic that we've seen it come up as much, or maybe it's always been there and we just haven't um, had a focus on it. Um, But what have I, how do I want to start this? But basically, do you think that there is, under the U.S. law, we can say, or the Federal Arbitration Act, some basis for immunity for the arbitral institution? And if so, what what would that scope of that immunity be? Well, this is a topic um, that I've worked on for many years. So I'm general counsel of the 
AAA ICDR. I'm actually also, I'm senior vice president of the ICDR. So I oversee okay. our International Center for Dispute Resolution um, and all of its activities. So I have really sort of an operational level of responsibility and I have um, my general counsel level of responsibility. I've got uh, a legal department um, that's experienced and capable and, and enables me to sort of manage these dual roles. Um, and also very experienced ICDR staff. So I do have um, a pers- I, I, I've, uh, perspective really from both, from both rules. Right. But when you're talking about immunity, it's really, it's really the, you know, the litigation general counsel hat that I will speak from. Okay. And again, uh, these types of issues, litigation against an institution or um, an arbitrator, for issues arising out of a particular dispute um, have existed really for decades. And I think it is an important issue. You know, in the United States, of course, it's well known as an incredibly litigious environment. Yes. <laughs> and and that, that carries through to the arbitration process as well. And so uh, this, this topic, a suit against an institution or an arbitrator, um, it, it seems to be uh, much more prevalent in the United States. And so the case law uh, that exists is much more substantial and established than in most other jurisdictions. Uh, so for an institution, that's a good news, bad news story. Right. Uh, the bad news is you're more likely to be sued if you're an arbitrator and, um, or an institution. Uh, the good news is that the body of law that exists is very favorable to the arbitration process and to the neutral and impartial role that institutions and arbitrators play and the, and the impropriety of suits against them. And, uh, you know, we can discuss why it's important, but it is an issue that's existed for, for many, many years. Just to start from a kind of a granular level, if someone were to file a claim, let's say they, there was, you know, an arbitrator behaved, you know, inappropriately or, you know, beyond the, the scope of the rules, would that claim go only to the arbitrator or would that ex- could the claim be filed against both the arbitrator and the institution as joint our experience, our experience is that it's uh, either or both. Okay. And there's, there's not a particular pattern, at least in terms of our experiences. Um, the, the institution, frankly, is, is sued more frequently than uh, the individual arbitrator. And there might be many reasons for that. One, it's, uh, you know, it's easier to perhaps attack the institution um, uh, and the process as opposed to an individual. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's tactical. You've got jurisdiction over the institution because we have a presence, we have a you know, large presence domestically and internationally. So it's easier to mm-hmm. get jurisdiction. So you get, uh, you know, a choice, a better choice perhaps of which court you want to be in. Right. Um, so there's many reasons, but it can be against either the institution or the, or the arbitrator. And I just, I also want to say though, it's important because uh, as we talk about this topic and, and we do have a lot of cases, we have a, a, a sizable docket of active cases right now where, where we're dealing with uh, matters where we've been named or an arbitrator has been named. Um, but as a percentage of the cases that we administer, it was tens of thousands of cases that we administer every year. It's very, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yet 
as I said, uh, for an institution of our size, it's enough to keep us, it's enough to keep a, a legal department very busy. <laughs> and what, what are the basis of, could you give kind of a, a, a cross section of what kind of claims are being brought? Like what, are the, what is the general nature of these claims? I think it's easiest to put them sort of into two categories. And, okay. and the greater majority of lawsuits that are commenced against the AAA ICDR or an arbitrator, uh, but, but for this group of cases, it's more, more likely to be us, it relates to arbitrability disputes. So the scenario is a demand for arbitration is filed with us, all the filing requirements are met, and the respondent or respondents say, uh, this matter is not subject to arbitration because, and it can be various reasons, uh, a condition precedent hasn't been met. We're supposed to require to mediate first, but mm. before we arbitrate. It could be that uh, there was fraud. It could be that this, a signature was forged. Um, there's you know, innumerable reasons why a party might not want to arbitrate or litigate for that matter. But these types of issues are raised earlier on um, and the allegation is, you know, AAA, by accepting this case, you've made a decision that it's arbitrable. And that's really not our role. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at our rules, uh, we have final requirements, but it's just all that means is we're presented with the case. And arbitrability is going to be decided by an arbitrator or a court, depending on the case. It's certainly right. not us. Uh, but when we provide that response, that's where we see a number of cases. A party will sue us, and, uh, and the relief they're seeking is that we terminate the arbitration. Oh, and okay. um, yeah, and and sometimes the true party in interest, the other party of the arbitration is named. Sometimes they're not. The other party of the arbitration has to be there because they're the party that needs to litigate. The arbitrability issue, the AAA is not in a position to do that. We can argue why exactly. administratively we can proceed or not proceed, but not why the merits of the arbitrability uh, dispute should be decided one way or another. So that's the most common, that's the most common group. And then the other group is it's a, it's a lawsuit over an alleged uh, impropriety, uh, a failure to disclose, a incorrect decision on arbitrator removal, a, uh, uh, a arbitrator's decision that was incorrect on um, some preliminary matter, a dispositive motion of some sort. Um, so um, those are the two main areas. Yeah. You either, I mean, you uh, kind of, maybe this is coming, I've lived in Europe too long, but you would like, that wouldn't be a reason to start a separate litigation. It would maybe be a reason to set aside the award or um, to challenge you know, the arbitrator's impartiality if there was a failure to disclose. But there, there are remedies within the, you know, the Arbitration Act to solve these problems. So it's interesting that parties have kind of found another way to seek an appeal, basically. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that these are cases that I'm not suggesting that this is the proper way to do it. I'm, I'm merely saying that in our experience, when there is litigation at the, early in the case on, and there are is a greater number of these than other types of cases that it relates to whether or not a particular case is arbitrable. You're exactly right. The, 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 the way to handle this, approach this legally, is that uh, you would present those arguments to an arbitrator and they would decide one way or another and exactly preserve your right to uh, raise those arguments on the motion to vacate or right. 
you know, in the U.S., it is it is appropriate in some circumstances to file a to commence a litigation regarding arbitrability. But as I say, the parties to that dispute should be the parties to the contract, right. not the institution or the arbitrator. That actually, um, speaking of this kind of privity situation, I, if, if a claim were to be brought against an arbitrator and they brought in the institution as a co-defendant or whatever it may be, is there a defense for the institution to say, and maybe it depends on how that arbitrator was appointed, but that this is between the parties and the arbitrator based on the fact that the, the arbitral mandate is based off the party's appointment of these arbitrators or the selection of these arbitrators? Is, is there kind of a privity argument that the institution can raise as a defense in these types of proceedings? There is, but frankly, our best defense is simply, usually, that we are immune from lawsuits of this type. Right. That uh, it's improper to force an institution uh, to take part of a dispute between two parties or more parties to a contract over whether a particular issue or, or, or subject is arbitrable. And it's a broad, the case law that exists speaks broadly to these types of issues. And so instead of getting into issues of contract or privity, um, our, our primary desire is to maintain our neutrality and impartiality because frankly, many of these types of cases, um, the outcome is that there's an order to arbitrate. Mm -hmm. And if we're continuing to administer the case, we need to ensure that to the extent possible, even though we're getting sued, and this is, this can be very difficult sometimes, the allegations sometimes, you know, these are not kind <laughs> uh, statements about sometimes the arbitration process or uh, the institution's desires or motivations. Um, you know, sometimes they are direct attacks on the arbitration process. But our, our role is to, is to assert immunity and to maintain our neutrality and impartiality to the extent possible. So we don't generally get into privity issues okay. or, or those um, types of issues. We will refer to the fact that the parties' agreements incorporate the rules and the rules provide that uh, we will not be named or arbitrary will not be named. There are some cases where the interests of an arbitrator and the institution, uh, then this doesn't particularly apply in arbitrability types of matters, but there are instances where um, it's simply not possible to uh, represent or take the same position as the arbitrator in a particular dispute. Um, but again, uh, we're not trying to be adverse or to create a wedge right. between the institution and the tribunal. Um, so it's the rare case where we have to do that. But in general, our defense is largely to assert immunity. And the trend of the court decisions coming from these litigation is generally that the immunity does exist. It's, it's pretty well established right. in most state and federal courts. Some, uh, you know, some jurisdictions don't have the, the body of case law that others do, uh, you know, particularly at the state level. Um, you know, we've got a, a, a state court system and a federal court system, and um, the U.S. Constitution is the law of the land here, and we've got a, a system of federalism, uh, and the 
federal court system and a state court system. And so you got to, you know, sort of, fortunately, there is uh, the same uh, policies favoring arbitration, both at the state and federal level, but mm-hmm. federal courts tend to be just a little bit more experienced in dealing with arbitration issues. Um, although, you know, many state courts that are, are, are very, very familiar with these issues too, um, right. um, as, as you might expect. So, um, again, it, it somewhat depends on, on where you are. Right. Was there any uh, rumblings of a potential litigation against the institution for this um, Jay-Z arbitration where he was saying that it would be unfair based on the fact that there were no African-American uh, arbitrators without conflicts available to for him to choose? I think the Jay-Z case is a good example of the challenge it can be for an institution to to maintain its its uh, neutrality and impartiality. So that's an active case. Uh, it was an active case, I should say. Uh, the first time we learned about a lawsuit was when uh, a newspaper reporter called us and said, do you have a comment on this on this lawsuit that was filed? Um, and they were going to press five minutes later. That, that was the first we'd heard of it. Oh, wow. Of course, it became much more noticeable. So we were, so in that case, the AAA was not a party. We were not subpoenaed. Uh, and again, at the time, it was an active case. But, uh, you know, it's fair to say that a lot of the reporting um, didn't reflect our perspective of what was happening at the time. So, uh, you know, even there, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail because we did administer the case. But, you know, I will say um, that, you know, in the public record are a number of, of facts. Uh, so, in that case, the first list of arbitrators that was sent to the party that was raised as a concern, it did contain a name, the names of, uh, you know, a number of, you know, perhaps 25% to a third uh, were uh, African-American, Black. Uh, there was a, a person of Asian descent. There were women on that list. Mm-hmm. It was, in general, a list that was relatively diverse in terms of gender and ethnicity. Uh, Of course, the issue in that case is that um, it wasn't sufficiently made up of the the individuals that Jay-Z saw. So the parties litigated that in a way that's theoretically the way it should be. It's the party's dispute about what the roster should look like. And in fact, the parties ended up working it out uh, and that entire issue was settled before there was any court decision on whether the list was or was not appropriate. Right. So, so your question about is that the type of case that, that maybe uh, provides or suggests that an institution perhaps should be named in a litigation where its activities were um, what gave rise to the dispute? Right. sort of sub-dispute within the arbitration. I'd argue the opposite. I think that that is a case that shows where the real dispute exists. And if the parties want to have a roster, uh, a list of arbitrators to select from that have any particular background, um, we will absolutely work with that. But even in the absence of that, um, we're entirely committed to the diversity efforts that have been placed for many years 
And part of that includes, wherever possible, sending out lists of individuals who are diverse in, in, in the larger context. And when I say diverse, it's both gender and ethnicity. It's not one or the other. Right. So we do work hard on that. Now, to just change gears, I'll try and make this segue as seamless as possible, uh, to, from this reactive function of the institution and maybe being a defendant in one of these claims to a proactive function of the institution. Um, I want to get your thoughts on a different topic, which is um, the filing, an institution, specifically the AAA, filing an amicus curiae brief in a um, arbitration or uh, litigation. Um, I just pulled one up quickly, which was the BG versus Argentina case, where um, it actually went up to the Supreme Court and the AAA filed an amicus in that case um, for the question um, relating to whether the courts and not the arbitrators have authority to decide de novo whether a precondition to arbitration has been complied with. Um, You've been at the AAA for quite a while and the ICDR for quite a while. Has this been a growing policy of the institution or how did this kind of this idea or this um, this function form? The Yeah, the AAA has been, um, we've been around for well over 90 years at this point. And we have filed amicus briefs periodically since we were founded. Hmm. So that also is not a new direction or policy for us. We don't do it frequently. And we have a set of guidelines that apply to when we uh, will file a brief. Uh, we get a lot of requests for them. Um, and we just went over immunity and, and how important neutrality and impartiality is and right. how important it is for uh, uh, decision makers, arbitrators and institutions to be free to make decisions administrative or merits-based without fear of intimidation or, or threats of lawsuits. Um, so we, in some respects, our policy regarding amicus briefs, um, uh, you know, it folds into that in some respects. So we, we are, with respect to most arbitration related litigation in cases that we administer, we are, we are going to be reluctant to get involved. We need to make sure that when we are filing an amicus, actually asserting ourselves into a particular case, that it's there's a really compelling reason for us to do that. So, uh, you know, in terms of our guidelines, we're really focusing on um, the highest level courts in within the United States or, or elsewhere. Uh, so cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, they get the highest priority. Our appellate courts uh, also some priority, but not as much. State Supreme Court's highest priority. And then in other countries, we also look to the development of arbitration law. The amicus rules are quite a bit different, and it gets, you know, very jurisdiction by jurisdiction specific about whether we even can consider it or do it. Right. Um, but but that's, that's the first issue, is, is the issue important to the development of arbitration law? And is what the AAA, ICDR, is what we would say is it unique and important to the case? Because very mm-hmm. frequently we have a view on a case, but we don't have a substantive issue or facts or experience to add that's different to what the parties are very adequately briefing the court with. So, um, so uh, we, we, 
if we're going to file a brief, it, it is going to be from our own voice. We don't team up with uh, a party necessarily. Um, we, we draft them and write them on our own. We have a law committee that assists with that. Um, but, but, the, but the vetting process is pretty stringent. And uh, mm. we don't we don't do it frequently. But you you pointed to the BG Group case, and that was, you know, that was an issue we thought was very important with respect to uh, international arbitration. But it had domestic overlays and application as well. Right. The issue of conditions precedent and who decides those is it's very commonly raised. So we did not want a, a splintered treatment of that issue. Now, is there is part of the criteria you will only touch on disputes that arose in a AAA arbitration or only disputes that have the applicable law, one of the states in the United States, or does, is there a limitation in that sense or just on the movement of, or the um, consistent interpretation of, you know, the arbitral law under the Federal Arbitration Act? No, there's no limitations. We do take a particular look at cases where AAA rules are at stake or being interpreted. And, right. But that's not determinative. There are some cases where uh, AAA rules are front and center, and but we decline to get involved because, again, we feel as though the issues as, as they're presented and being argued and briefed are, are very adequately being handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there, there can be issues where if the AAA's rules are at stake. Um, we're, we're also a little concerned about neutrality and how our voice may be uh, interpreted. So just as one example, uh, a brief we filed in 2009 in the uh, Animal Feeds case, um, Stolt-Nielsen versus Animal Feeds, is a, it was a class action case. And we actually filed an amicus on behalf of neither party. Mm-hmm. We just thought it was important that the Supreme Court understand why we were administering class action arbitrations, how our rules were developed, um, some statistics on what we were seeing. We felt like that experiential voice, that's an example of providing the court information that they just probably wouldn't get anywhere else, uh, would, would assist them. Um, and in fact, that amicus brief was not cited so much in Stoll Nielsen, but in subsequent class action arbitration. Oh, interesting. Both, both, by, uh, both by dissenting justices and by majority justices. So again, th- those issues, as I say, about neutrality um, can shape whether we get involved or not. Right. But we're looking for cases that are really critical to the development of arbitration law. When, and when you say looking for cases, is that you you guys are, you know, watching the cases come up in the courts or that you, it mostly comes from invitations of parties? It's both. It's both. Uh, we're, we're usually aware of many of the cases where a petition for Supreme Court review, review have been sought, but in other cases, yeah, parties will reach out to us and mm-hmm. request you know, just filing. Great. Well, those are all our questions, and it's 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 been really illuminating to have have your perspective on this, and it's um it's great, and it's much better to have a perspective of someone who's been in in the game and the institution side for a while instead of just this you know doctrinal research on you know whether there is an immunity or not to just hear how it works out in practice. Um, so thank you very much for for dedicating your time for this segment. Well, and thank you very much, Brian. I enjoyed speaking with you, and I do agree it's an important issue. Um, 
And hopefully we'll see other jurisdictions around the United States also recognizing how important um, uh, the neutrality and impartiality of our institutions and, and arbitrators really is to the process. So Absolutely. So I am a Swedish lawyer. I can say that I, like most Swedish lawyers, have never done anything pro bono. <gasps> not, not, not because I'm a bad person, but because we don't really have the pro bono culture. And we can talk about that separately. I, I think you should be able to have access to justice in any event. And I think that's the, the reason in many countries you don't really do pro bono because courts are cheap and anyone should be able to access courts. That is not true everywhere. And I'm thinking again of the United States. And since you are both, I think, admitted in, in uh, United States bars, I mm -hmm. assume there are some rules suggesting, maybe even mandating that you do pro bono work, which means that I assume you have, or at least you're expected to do pro bono work. It's, both of you. Yeah, no, it's an obligation and you have to report it. Do, is that an obligation, right? <laughs> I mean, I remember, I, I thought we have to report it, yes, but it's not an obligation to do it. Maybe you're right, maybe we have, maybe the firms are obligated to do it, but as attorneys, do you also have to do a certain number of hours per there year? There are exceptions if you're not practicing in the jurisdiction, I believe. Ah, right, okay. I've called them number of times, because even like continuing legal education, you have to do in the US, but if you're not practicing in the US, yes, you don't have yes. to fulfill those. Um, so yes. you're, you're both excused for not practicing. <laughs> we, are, we are excused, so don't worry, Sadia, you won't be discussed. Okay, but you know, having, when I did work in New York, I remember spending a quite significant amount of hours on pro bono at the time. So and what kind yeah. then? Was it, was it arbitration-related pro bono, or was it more general practice that no, had very no. little to do with arbitration? So it was not related to arbitration. Um, it was litigation related. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the cases, at least at the time that I did, which took a lot of time, were the uh, alien tort states uh, statutes. Uh, I don't know if anyone is, you know, if you're familiar with it, I'm sure Brian has heard about it. But in essence, you can sue someone who, uh, and God forgive me if I'm misquoting the law now, I forget, but you can sue um, in the US before US courts. Um, someone who has a connection with the US and the whole thing is how do you evaluate that connection for a breach of human rights law uh, committed outside of uh, the US jurisdiction. So right. we would bring some claims, um, you know, representing individuals. So for example, I remember representing a Somali who, um, professor of law who was tortured by a Somali dictator at the time who had a house in Ohio for the Ohio courts, um, you know, things like that. Um, what now sorry let me you said if anything was related to arbitration actually not really directly so that was not related to arbitration but we did help states also advised states pro bono um so for example advising on their you know drafting on their mm -hmm. uh, constitution or you know assisting them at um uncitral or things like that which was qualified as pro bono yeah, uh, it is. It is quite broad. I know people that have wrote, written reports to the UN, for example, mm -hmm. that, and just to you know clarify, for example, some sort of type of investment law that they needed information on that would be qualified as pro bono. I have done a lot of like contract review um, for just smaller companies that has been deemed pro bono, but never, never an arbitration related pro bono matter. Yet we're still expected to do um, some pro bono work. Yeah. 
it would be too much money involved typically in the average arbitration related matter to have lawyers doing that it would be pro, yeah pro the bono. scope is yeah the scope would be way too way too broad i did some pro bono for basically just gathering evidence um to support new legislation that would protect um people against human rights or human rights violations, but basically um, anti-gay discrimination in countries like the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, they, the government in order to pass such legislation would need evidence that this was actually happening. Um, so I was um, kind of just gathering articles and, and sim- you know, similar news stories to, to prove that this was happening and that people were, had their lives endangered, also to support asylum legislation as well. Ah, uh, right. That's the one also we did a lot was asylum applications. Yeah. Uh, that was also a constant um, at the firm. There were a lot of cases involved. It's, in it sounds like in addition to doing something that is very hands-on and, and can be useful in, in concrete cases, it sounds like it could be fun as well on a personal level to work with like other people from the firm, from other groups and to work on a joint project that is sort of outside of the, the normal run of the mill of a, of a corporate law firm. Oh, absolutely. yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, no, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm going to preaching the choir. I mean, I, I do, did those cases because I thought they were extremely interesting and also to get training because mm-hmm. um, you're really hands-on, you know, on the grounds, you get a, you're usually you're representing an individual as opposed to a big corporation. So the stakes are actually higher, <laughs> I thought, you know, because if you mess up, you're messing up someone's life. I mean, it, I know it's true also in arbitration, of course, and it, it doesn't... It, yeah, but the company disputes, etc. Yeah, and also yeah. if you represent a state, it's the same thing. Of course, there's so much at stake. But I think when you're starting off as a junior and you have cases like this assigned to you, it's a great, great training for your Absolutely. arbitration cases. So that's great. But it's true, your, your comment on um, you not doing pro bono in Sweden. Um, so now that I work for a French firm, uh, we don't have the same obligations, but we still are doing pro bono work. Um, definitely not as much as I was doing in the U.S., uh, in the U.S., I remember I at some point was doing 200 hours on top of my usually billable requirements, which wow. is nuts. Um, in France, I think, in our firm, I think it's only like 40 or 60 hours. That that's, has, our, that's our yeah, firm policy. So. Which is like, come on, guys. Like, what are you going to do in 40 and 60 hours per year? Per year. Uh, what, what, what I mean is 50 or 60 hours is, I don't know if it's 40 or 60, but it's count as billable hours that you do. So it's part of, of, you know, the package that they evaluate for your salary and your bonuses, et cetera, because you have to incentivize associates to do so, right? Because we're paid depending on the billable hours and everything is related to that. So if someone is doing more pro bono, then do they get, you know, what gratification do you get from that apart from the personal gratification? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the limit to 40 or 50 hours is, is a disincentive for people to take on full arbitration cases because if only 50 is billable, you know, and you're looking at 3000 for an arbitration, then why would you ever take that on? In the UK, they have, you, you basically go to a legal advice center. So people, it's basically office hours and Mm -hmm. anyone from the public can come in with their dispute and just seek advice. And you get, you just sit there one or two hours and they rotate in and you get one hour per, per client. They basically come in and be like, uh, land dispute, here are my documents. And you review them and you go, I would generally do this. And if you have time, you help them write a letter. Um, mm-hmm. But that's really all you can do to get 40 hours without spending all your time advising advising a client. Because I, 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 I've, I've had this happen. You advise them on you know, some sort of contract 
and then something else pops up and now you're their lawyer (laughs) and they're writing to you being like help something else happened and you're like how do i how do i handle this with my firm Actually, one other thing I was thinking about when you mentioned pro bono is um, when I was in a UK firm, uh, I did some pro bono, but it wasn't legal work. So it was uh, helping some kids that were in junior high school or something, mentoring them. And it was mm-hmm. a mentoring program and they all came to the firm and it was all a partner, a partnership between the firm and another NGO. And as a result, you know, we would um, mentor three or four um, students all year long. And we will help them do homework and, you know, career um, advice, et cetera, et cetera. And they would come regularly to the firm for these sessions. And they came from, you know, disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so that was that was actually really, really, um, uh, you know, uh, work that I, I, I really enjoyed doing rewarding. as well. And I, yeah, rewarding is the word I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that's, so <clears throat> and in France as well, we do, there's a whole section of work that we do that is completely disconnected with law in the pro bono. Um, you know, we have a fund, a pro bono fund that the partners contribute to, which is a lot of money per oh, year. Wow. And we award that money to like a startup or like a, association or something so they can do and it it has nothing to do with law at all right so it's it's just you know advice and other things so to answer your question joel pro bono is a very broad 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 term for not working on cases yeah but we don't hear i don't hear about it that much not in our world of of international arbitration specialists i have other friends working in other legal areas in particular if you're working in the u.s and or for a big global firm i know a lot of people do a lot of pro bono work but it's not something that is nearly as frequent at least it's not on the the discussion table in the world of arbitration as much wait do you mean like doing arbitration cases or arbitration lawyers doing pro bono the latter arbitration lawyers doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess there are, I remember it's the, the BJ arbitration, this big, um, uh, Ethiopian arbitration that Wilmer Hale took on and some others. I might be going out on a limb, but I just know this because there's, there's a YouTube video of Wendy Miles and Gary Bourne. And it was a big, big, big case that went on for years. I think that was a pro bono project that the firm did, but otherwise yeah, I don't hear from you or other colleagues who work for law firms that much. It's, it's never, Oh, I, now I'm working on this amazing pro bono thing. It's always yeah. like, oh, I'm working on this submission. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. That's true. I think it depends on the pro bono projects that we have. But with some of them, um, it's true that in my firm, people who are not in arbitration, there are a few, but not a lot. It's mostly the finance team and others team that are involved in pro bono projects where it's a real estate association, I think, and that you help them. It's real estate advice. Uh, although we don't have a real estate department, but it's to help them, you know, um, yeah. with queries relating to that. Um, also, just a question, and it's not to say that the work that you just mentioned uh, when the miles and Gary Bourne it was pro bono, but is it really real pro bono? <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, <laughs> I'm just wondering if you can call it pro bono. I mean, you're doing it for free. So yes. Okay. The definition is pro bono, but we had a debate um, within the firm as to whether things could be called pro bono or not, because um, if you're doing stuff that it's actually business development or, you know, mm, to right, raise yeah. the, mm, you know, your pro, it's not really pro bono. Bono. Um, that would be the same as like calling a fee discounted arbitration, you know, that you've discounted yeah. your fees on half pro bono. Yeah, exactly. So like you're <laughs> teaching pro bono because you're not paid, like, you know, our conferences done pro bono. No, we never say that, right? No. Like we spend so much time doing non-billable work, which we're not paid for, but it's because of the indirect. 
I guess it's because you're waiving a fee. It's, it's in a context where you would otherwise get paid and you choose not to get paid. And the person enjoying your service would otherwise have to pay someone else to do it. And now they're relieved from, from mm-hmm. paying for it. Yeah. It was, that's one thing I really enjoyed with academia and that I kind of missed as well. It's, it's, it's referred to as the third mission or something for academics that you're, you're teaching and you're researching. Those are your, tour, your two core jobs but you also have the third one which is just general interaction with the the public at large and with with society meaning that you know you, you shouldn't you have a university salary and if you're answering questions or you're taking part in different projects or you're in the media and you're doing all these things as an academic you shouldn't get paid for that because you have your university salary and it should be part of any good academics job to do these things for free, just interaction, mm. interactions beyond the classroom to, you know, share the expertise you're, you're gaining in your field by working <laughs> for mm-hmm. university. Right. Okay. Does that, apply, does that apply to us in the podcast? <laughs> is this uh, a pro bono podcast? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I don't know about you guys. I'm not getting rich from this. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Yeah. If, if people want to contribute and pay us for that, then we that's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, I think I think uh, if you look at U.S. firms, um, they're definitely doing much more pro bono than continental firms. That's for sure. Absolutely, oh, that's yeah. a, a good note to end on it. A, a rare, a rare nice word about the United States legal <laughs> tradition. <laughs> it's probably because their fees are so expensive that they have a lot of yeah, work. But it's true. <laughs> there we go. Couldn't let it go. Also, maybe there's less of an institutional um, framework which provides access to justice for free, right. you know, um, in, in this jurisdiction. I'm just thinking, like you gave the example of Sweden. Uh, I think so. This is, I talk to, to uh, Americans about this a lot. I think it's a general thing as well. It's the same as with charity, which is much more developed. I oh, think. yes, exactly. And institutionalized and, you know, contributing to the community and things you do in the U.S., whereas I think in many West European states, those, those functions you trust the state to do rather than private, <laughs> exactly. private citizens. It's, it's just different. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think it's a good, it's a good summary. It's whether the state, you know, provides for that service or you should do it on an individual level. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I always remember that, and not that I watched that a lot, but I remember that scene in Suits where they discuss pro bono. He's just throwing a file at, you know, one of the associates, like, here you go, like pro bono, mm-hmm. as if it was like some kind of, you know, sanction <laughs> to test him. <laughs> Punishment. <laughs> in Punishment. Manheim, at Manheimer, and I, I could be wrong, I believe they have a pro bono partner. So they have oh, yeah. someone really just manning all those cases so that they just have on salary. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We have that too. We have a pro bono commission and a pro bono partner. Actually. There you go. That, uh, Maybe that's a way forward for mm-hmm. firms. Well, thank you, Sadia, for your segment. And thank you, Eric Tuckman. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Callum. For thank you, Callum. Yeah. Thank you so much for the research. Um, follow us at the, arbitration, at the ARB station or email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Brian. Bye. I do. Bye. <laughs>